Welcome to the In Vino Fab podcast. I'm Patrice. And I'm Laura. In Vino Fabulum means in wine story. There are so many tales that need to be told about women and community paired with wine, of course. The In Vino Fab pod is a place to learn and share about our stories, about work, interests, passion projects, issues, and random wine facts. Carol Hernandez is currently a senior instructional designer at Stony Brook University Center for Excellence in Learning and Teaching. She also teaches in the Higher Education Administration Master's Program there. Carol is bilingual, a first-generation college student, and the daughter of immigrants from Ecuador. Prior to working in higher education, Carol was a reporter and editor in daily newspapers around the country. She was a staff writer at the Miami Herald and was a Pulitzer Prize finalist for an investigative series at the Dayton Daily News in Ohio. At Newsday in New York, she was part of the Pulitzer-winning team that reported on the crash of TWA Flight 800. Carol earned her associate degree from Miami-Dade College, her bachelor's degree from the University of Florida, and her master's degree from Stony Brook University. She's currently a doctoral candidate in organizational leadership studies at Northeastern University. Her research looks at the work of educational developers through a critical race theory lens. She's interested in the lived experiences of Latinas and Hispanic women working in the higher education space. For fun, she likes to run, do yoga, and she's secretly a big comedy nerd. She's also a mom, wife, and devoted cat lady. Carol, we're so glad you're taking time out of your busy schedule to visit the Invino Fab Pod. Carol Hernandez, welcome to the podcast. We're glad to have you. Hi, thank you. Thank you for having me. Fun fact, Carol is podcasting in a booth that I'm very jealous of um, at her place of work. Uh, Tell them about your setup. Sure. So I'm at Stony Brook University in New York, and I've just joined uh, the team here um, that is the Center for Excellence in Learning and Teaching. And we are part of the Division of Information Technology. And so we have some great resources. For example, the place I'm recording from right now um, is a place that faculty can use to to record things and also students can use to um, complete assignments. So um, yeah, it's wonderful. I love that about, there's so many great like um, teaching and learning centers that are doing this. Like they're thinking about sound and video and having like production spaces. So it used to be um, formerly just in like TV and broadcasting or journalism schools would have them, but I love that they're thinking about them in other kind of instructional design spaces. So I gave a little intro about you, but could you do the our listeners a favor and just skim your resume and give us an idea about some of the jobs and roles you've had in the last little while? Sure. So um, I'm actually, the space I'm in is sort of co-owned between uh, the Teaching and Learning Center and the School of Journalism. Um, so we have people here that are from both of those organizations. And um, and my resume uh is in line with that. Um, so my first career was in journalism. My undergrad was in journalism at the University of Florida. And I worked in that field for many years um, as a reporter um, covering local news, crime, um, you know, school board meetings, strikes, um, all kinds of just regular breaking news. And then um I switched over to editing and, you know, I enjoyed that as well. So the editing side of it is you're reading what's coming in and you're writing headlines and you're creating layouts and you're 
you know, thinking about placement. Um, so my background is in print journalism. Uh, as I said before, probably, you know, the, the kind of boring journalism, <laughs> but um, it's not as exciting as, as TV or, or um, radio, but, um, but that was the skill set that I felt most comfortable with was the writing piece. Um, so I stuck with that. And then um, about 10 years ago, I started to teach journalism here at Stony Brook University. Um, I taught a course called News Literacy, which is basically like journalism 101 for non-journalism majors. And it teaches students to be critical news consumers. We need that now. I hope you can teach that again. (laughs) I'd love to keep teaching that. So um, what we do is we basically cover, you know, the basics of journalism. Like what do journalists do? Um, and not a lot of people know exactly what journalists do. Um, so when they learn about the process of journalism, it opens their eyes to why it's important in a democracy, you know, why we need information to make decisions. Um, so that was a great experience working with students and it was so gratifying and I just loved it so much that I decided that maybe I wanted to stay in higher education. So at that point, I started working on a master's and earned my master's here at Stony Brook. Um, So my master's is in higher education administration. Um, And that was a good experience as well because I was new to higher ed. And so I got to learn all kinds of things about higher ed, like, you know, legal issues in higher ed and crisis management in higher ed and student development theory and adult learning theory and assessment of student learning. So I got to learn about how higher ed works, you know, how it should work and how it can benefit students. Um, And in that process, got involved with teaching and learning with technology and became aware of instructional design as a career. So when I got to know instructional design better, I realized that a lot of the skill set that I had used as a reporter and editor, I could apply to this other job. And I think of journalism in a lot of ways, journalism is a, it's a teaching and learning job because um, you are going out and you are doing research and talking to people and gathering evidence and you're learning and then you immediately have to write it up or present it to an audience. So you're immediately teaching and all the skills that you're using for that, you can then apply to instructional design. Um, So that seemed like a good fit for me and I decided to continue with instructional design. So my last position was instructional designer at a different university. Um, And in the meantime, I decided to pursue my doctorate. So my doctorate is in education. It's in organizational leadership studies at Northeastern University. And the program is called low residency, which means that I take most of my classes online. 
and I'm required to be in Boston for two summers to do um, in-person courses. Um, so that's been a great experience as well because um, a lot of what I do with faculty is to help them find ways to use technology to create inclusive spaces for students to learn so um, so that students are doing doing something so they're active in their own learning um, and with Northeastern I get to experience that as a student and I that informs my work with faculty as well. I think that's great. Um, I think having multiple roles as a, a staff member, a student, uh, a scholar, um, it really does inform the practice. And you made the most interesting connection of journalism. So I, I think you're one of my last interviews on career changers, and I'm glad you reached out because I actually thought about how teachers and educators and researchers could go into journalism. So hearing that you went to a J school, like I do think there is a connection back and forth because you're, you're right. You have to continue to tool up. So both of your roles are you're always educating, you're learning what's the latest thing in the practice, uh, what are the tools of the trade, um, how do you explain something in plain English and get enough knowledge out in certain ways. So I, I never thought of it until you, you brought it up. I really think the connection, both your shared partnership where you work now and what you, why you went from journalism to um, higher ed does make sense. And maybe we need more crossovers like this. <laughs> yeah, um, the thing about journalism, I think, is um, you meet, when you're working in journalism, you meet really bright people who are really curious. Um, and the same, I think, is with higher ed, you meet bright people who are really curious. Um, and yeah, definitely, you need to be able to to turn things around really quickly, like you need to be able to learn it immediately and then teach it to someone else. And I think those skills are um, needed for both roles. So Absolutely. You're so right. Those skills do inform each other in practice. So um, typically I ask folks what you've learned from one or the other, but it sounds like you've taken some uh, transferable skills into one kind of fields industry into the other. And so you not only are doing like learning design and faculty development now, some parts of the world call it education development, others call it academic development. So you're working with faculty, teachers, instructors on how to do better teaching and learning with maybe technology or just pedagogical practices. But I think what you said is right. They kind of do inform each other because I think the role of teaching in higher ed has changed over the years. And we know journalism has changed. So you've had to always be current, be informed, get some professional development. So how do you, how did you stay sharp um, as a journalist and how do you do that now as um, in educational development? Um, well, so one of the things that I was thinking about when you said, um, you know, keeping sharp, um, so one of the things that I loved about journalism was every day that I walked into the building, I knew that that something was going to happen and it was going to be new and I was going to learn something new every day. Um, whether it was, you know, being assigned to something I had never covered before, to talking to someone that I would otherwise never meet um, or having the opportunity to attend an event that, you know, might 
might not have happened in my normal life. Um, so all of that was so exciting to me. And um, I think that if you're a curious person, as I am, um, who just loves learning all the time, that was a perfect job. So um, just it, it was exciting and I loved it. Um, it. I would say, you know, definitely you want to be able to meet deadlines. <laughs> that, I think, is where um, sometimes people will decide, you know, this is not for me because you really do need to be able to, to produce quickly. Um, there's no time to think too much about something because you're usually writing every single day. You're usually publishing every single day. Um, and yeah, so that might be where that might be a deal breaker for some people. If you don't want to write every single day, that might not be the job for you. I think it's preparing you for your doctorate. And I can see why your current employer hired you because we need more task-driven people like you to meet deadlines and do pr- produce things. Um, so I think it's neat that you are, um, you've transferred into this career that you found really valuable. And the world that you live in is thinking about teaching and learning, the design aspects of it, maybe the technology, um, maybe helping subject matter experts or the faculty talk about and translate their work into something that makes sense to undergrad, grad, or doctoral students. Um, so I think that's really neat that you're kind of uh, now at a different pace in higher ed. We, we move a little slower, let's say, in higher ed, but you're, you still have the same idea of projects, it sounds like, and tasks and things you, you work on, and the learning looks different. So um, how do you kind of best inform your practice beyond you are in school, but beyond that, like what keeps you kind of in the know of the trends or things to learn about or things that you discover on a daily basis now to keep your learning going? Cause I'm an, I'm a nerd learner like you. So how do you keep learning? Right. So, um, I guess just personally, I've, I've continued to read a lot. Like I'm, I'm constantly reading and not just not just for my dissertation. I should probably be reading more for my dissertation. Don't tell anyone that. <laughs> okay, it's our secret. No one will know. <laughs> um, but uh, I love reading, so I'm always reading something, um, and I'll read anything. Like I'll read, you know, I just finished reading a book by a comedian, um, Pete Holmes. He just mm-hmm. wrote a book, um, and. Now I'm reading another book by um, Ram Dast. He's a um, uh, he's kind of like a spiritual guru. Um, it's called Polishing the Mirror. It's all about you know raising your consciousness. Interesting. And so so those things are not directly related to my research, but I feel like they inform um, you know how I see the world and how I try to help people solve problems. Um, so faculty, uh, you know, will run into a challenge with their teaching or what students are doing or why students are not more engaged. And I need to be able to, to meet them where they are. So um, some of that is about my own awareness and my own assumptions and not jumping to conclusions. Um, so I feel like it informs what I do, even though it's not in my field. Um, I'm on Twitter. I follow other scholars. Um, I read the literature. 
you know, I, I, I'm on listservs and I, I'm like on the assessment listserv. Um, I'm a member of the pod network, which is the professional, professional and organizational development development network in higher education. And that group is dedicated to people that do the work of educational development, academic development, faculty development, um, some uh, teaching with technology, some instructional design. Um, It's basically a network of people that that work with faculty. Um, A lot of times they're also teaching. So they're interested in how teaching happens and how learning happens and, you know, how to make, how to make it work smoothly. Um, it's a great resource. We'll, we'll put it in the show notes for our listeners. Um, so whether you're a member or not of pod, their listserv is available and they've got loads of like articles or like sharing of resources, job postings to what's coming up at a conference, what kind of research is being asked for. So um, yeah, we'll definitely share that with y'all. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm impressed that you're reading during your dissertation, side note, uh, because I dropped off of, and this is a terrible thing. I'm glad you shared that you are reading. So read beyond what you're actually studying is good. It does inform your practice. It informs your scholarship. It forms the things you think about because I dropped book reading literally until I finished my PhD. That was five years ago. And I went down the street to the library like, have you just moved in? I was like, no, I've just finished my PhD and I get to read for real now. And um, so I, I think it's great that you are informing uh, yourself with other things than just the literature because it does make you think differently about how you approach um, the work that you're doing it sounds like too right and my area of research is focused on specifically Hispanic women Latinx uh, members of educational development so the literature also points me toward um, self-awareness and dealing with assumptions and coming into a space that is not necessarily made for someone that looks like you. And so just in having to look at those topics, um, it is pushing me to, to think about myself and to think about my experiences in higher education because I need to, I need to have those, I need to have that vocabulary to then study it. Um, so it does inform the research. Um, yeah. Is there a, a, can I ask a question about that? Yeah. Is there a lot of research that has been done when you think of like um, learning design and educational development? Is there, is there much in the Latinx looking at women in Latinx in higher ed? Um, the, the literature seems to focus on faculty, um, or students, either undergrad or grad. Um, so as far as educational developers of color, there, there's not as much as there could be. Um, I think, you know, that's evolving. So as, as more practitioners of color come into this, field I think you know that would expand I hope um but right now it's um it's there's a gap let's Mm -hmm. put it that way there's a gap um 
which makes it exciting for me to be able to look at, look at that and try to, you know, fill in that gap a little bit. Cool. I'm, I'm glad that you're starting this work. Um, and we talked a little bit before we started recording that you're um, currently interested in learning of others or in the same kind of genre field or what have they been going through. You're always welcome to gain information resources and potentially participants, which we'll happily share once you're developing your study. Um, but it sounds like you'd love to have people reach out if they have questions or want to get involved or, or doing some of that work themselves. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm on Twitter my Twitter handle is at Carol underscore ed underscore dev d e b. Cool. So at Carol ed dev. Sweet. And we'll we'll add that to the notes for people to click on and follow. And yeah. Yeah, that would be great. That's awesome. Um, I think that you're right because we've looked at certain things in education in general, um, both K twelve, higher ed, and other other ways looking at other people's frameworks and not looking through the lens of how other educators see it and whether your education development, faculty development, um, which is the support structure, not the faculty or the student, but the third peg of that stool that we not, don't often look at is how are we supporting that teaching and learning and what, what do we know about who's helping to design and develop these in practice? So I'd be curious as to like, do you have questions you'd like to know or are there things you want to ask that you're kind of like, eh, let's talk it out loud. It doesn't have to be your final questions for your research, but are there things that you'd like to know more about in this area? So as a designer, you are aware of different theories about um, how learners learn and how to make a learning environment accessible to all learners. So, for example, there's universal design for learning. It's where you um, you look at what the barriers are for your students and you acknowledge them and address them and try to remove those barriers. Um, and I think um, there is work that looks at teaching with technology and how perhaps we assume that it's an equalizer because, oh, now it's so easy, you know, to, to access this education. But um, if you dig a little bit deeper, you find out that, you know, it might not be an equalizer. It might even be um, creating more disparity because we're still not all having the same access to the technology. Um, maybe we're accessing it in different ways. So for, for the designer, it's important to be aware of all of the different audiences out there and, you know, something as simple as how they're going to access this learning um, should then inform the design. Um, So sometimes that's um, accessibility in terms of, you know, are you um, captioning a video? Are you supplying students with the transcript? Um, If you're using images, are you aware of representation of different uh, ethnicities and cultures? Um, So there there are all these things that come up. Um, And, you know, there, there is not a lot of research that looks specifically at Hispanic students, Hispanic faculty in the online space. So, you know, so if that's your interest, then there's a lot you can cover in that area. 
Yeah. And I, I think you're right. Like what you said is we always think about learning online as it's available for all and they can access it. Well, their access point may be different. They may live in a area where uh, Wi-Fi and broadband is not as strong. So a streaming video audio might not be for them. So what are the multiple modes? Like you said, um, could they download it and take it with them to make it portable? Or are they looking at this, um, your learning materials on a small screen, like all they use is their phone, which I'm baffled when I learn students have written like full essays on their mobile phones. Like it, it blows my mind because so are we thinking about our course assessments and uh, requirements and assignments and what does that need look like? So I think you're right. Like it doesn't mean just because it's online that more we have ways to access it better and I am glad you're doing this work because it's needed and especially if the Latinx um, side of it, looking at women in Latinx has not been studied. I think there is a need because there's definitely going to be a different perspective and lens coming from there as well. And things that we haven't thought about yet. And yeah, this right. is exciting. So, so that population is one of the fastest growing um, groups in higher education. Um, so that makes it a pressing uh, subject to look at. Yeah. So the number of Hispanic women is projected to increase in this country and women are graduating and attending college faster than men. Um, so, so that will be a population that we need to take into account when we're designing courses. Um, and yeah, so that's, that's my role is to, to look at the research um, and look at what's being designed and then try to to continue to inform inform that area. I like it. That's the best kind of practice, evidence-based and seeing where we're coming from. I think that's really good. So now that you've your career is in the faculty education development area, um, what kind of gets you interested these days? So you have a new um, role at a new institution. So what are some things that you're hoping to work on? Um, or that maybe are projects that might be percolating in the future that you want to share with us or you might get involved with? There's so much, there's so much going on. I, we, we would need another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you're welcome to come back if there's, there's something else you want to chat about. But yeah, I know. Um, is there something that you're kind of charged with coming in or you, you're kind of in the learning time, I'm guessing, as you're getting onboarded and acquainted with the team and the needs of your faculty, it sounds like? Right. Um, yeah, I think this is a time for me to to really understand the organization and the needs of our students and our faculty, and then figure out how to best um, meet meet those needs. And every organization is different. And when you're talking about using technology in your teaching, um, you know you have those folks that have been doing it for the last 20 years. And so what they need is different from um, another group that maybe, you know, they've only been at it for five years or another group that, you know, maybe they're just now sort of tuning into it. Um, so my role is to first understand where, like where the organization is and then, and then to meet it there. 
I think that's good advice. Um, so getting started at a job might be something that few of our listeners might be doing. What are some advice you have for when you first start a new position and you've done this a few times or you started a new organization or institution? What are some things you think about doing to get to know the resources, the lay of the land and who's around and who you might be working with? Or is there any advice or suggestions you have for folks? Um, so in organizational theory, there's a, a really great um, theory. It's called um, uh, Shine's um, Organizational Culture Theory. And it all, it's, it's simple. It's easy to remember. It's three levels. There's the um, artifact level, which is everything that's visible, that you could see, the, the physical structure, the layout. Um, you know, the mascot, the website, like stuff you can see and touch. Um, and that tells you a little bit about the organization and what they're all about. And then the second level is called um, espoused beliefs. And that is, you know, the mission statement, the vision statement, um, anything that's written, that's disseminated, published, it's, um, communicated to external stakeholders. It's how the organization wants to be seen. And that is called the second level of spouse beliefs. And then there's the third level. And then the third level is called basic underlying assumptions. And that one is, is harder to, to understand. It takes the longest to understand. And that one, you really need to be a good observer. Um, you need to look for what people are actually doing. So, um, you know, they might have a policy or something in writing that says things should be this way, but then what are they actually doing? Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and what they're actually doing tells you what they really believe as a group. Um, and those assumptions are sometimes, they sometimes contradict what the policy is sure so so as an as a uh, a scholar of organizational studies um you would be looking at an organization and trying to read it in those ways like you're trying to read um not just what's visible and not just what's written but then what people are actually doing and then that really will tell you what they believe um so I guess that, that would be one of my tips is to take a look at Shine. <laughs> I like a, that. Yeah. yeah. Edgar Shine. Um, it's not a new theory, but it's one that I find really useful and it just clicked for me, um, me personally. So my background, um, my parents are immigrants. They came from Ecuador in the 60s. And so I grew up, you know, speaking Spanish at home and English at school and, you know, having like one cultural experience at home and one cultural experience at school. And, um, and higher ed is this, its own culture with its own language and assumptions and expectations. And so that is interesting to me is how you join different groups and you have to learn this, this new way of, of performing. Right. Um, so 
I'm new here and I'm still observing and still trying to figure out how I fit into this space. But I think that's, you know, that's probably true for anybody going into a new organization. I think that's a great approach. We've had other podcasts where we talked about culture so a couple episodes ago, we had Jamie Hoffman share a little bit about cultural fit. And so you bring up how to assess the culture is fantastic. So you can apply that to an org. You can also apply that to a person or a department. Like if you walk into someone's office, you know, you see physically what's important to them, uh, what's on their walls, to their desk. Or um, if you show up to their learning space, even you'll say, oh, I see that you're really interested in this. And yeah, no, I think that's a good way to approach it. So I like that. Being bimodal in your culture, has there been a time where you've had to kind of reconcile the tension between the two? Um, so whether it's home to work or even like studying where you study versus where you work, is there something been something that's kind of been like, how do I balance the two worlds, the two cultures together? Hmm. Well, I don't know about balancing, but, um, uh, it's more like switching, yeah. you know, switching back and forth. Um, so for example, I was at, um, my last institution, I was in the cafeteria and I was paying for something. And I know that the woman at the cash register speaks Spanish. That's her first language. So I always made a point of saying to her in Spanish, how are you? You know, what's going on? And, and one day she said, I, I want to tell you that, um, you know, it means so much to me that you are speaking to me in my language. It just, it makes me feel so good. And that made me feel good. Um, she was, she felt seen and she felt acknowledged. Um, and that wasn't really happening in her day because, you know, mostly she was seeing students and they weren't stopping to speak Spanish with her. Right. So it made a difference in her day and I, and, and in my day. And, you know, I think that's, that's the experience that I would say I'm able to have. I see it as a strength, um, being able to connect to people in a different language, um, I think is a strength. So like if I meet with a faculty member and we both speak Spanish our conversation might switch back and forth and we might talk about our families and things that maybe we normally wouldn't in a regular consultation on, you know, instructional design. Sure. Yeah. Um, it just, I think it adds to the experience um, of just acknowledging someone else's, you know, life. And yeah. Um, yeah. And it goes back to, you know, journalism. So as a journalist, you are trained to be a, a, an observer, like observe everything. You know, what are mm -hmm. people saying? How are they saying it? When are they saying it? Um, all of those things are cues um, to the message. And so I feel like that's, you know, I enjoy that. That's exciting to me. And I'm, I'm lucky that I can use that in my work. I think that's great because I think more people should bring more of their full selves to work. You're right. We sometimes let guard what we might not say personally um, or we might not get into um, because they're like, is that appropriate for work? Well, why aren't we bringing more of ourselves to work? It just makes it more interesting. And I like that you're 
you're sharing and letting people know that they, they are being seen because I think that why, why bother being a human and in the workplace if you're not doing some of that is what I say. Right. And a lot of times instructors and faculty, you know, they'll say, I, my students aren't engaged. Um, yeah. And sometimes, you know, sometimes it's because maybe students aren't feeling acknowledged. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so in instructional design, you talk about like um, giving students choice, um, encouraging students to reflect on their own professional goals. Like, how is this course relevant to my goals? Um, and, you know, those all go hand in hand with just acknowledging that, you know, you're a person having your own experience and your own reality and your, you know, your own goals. And, and I, and I am as well. And then how do we, how do we meet somewhere in the middle? Um, so, yeah. I like that. You're treating like the work you do. It is a, it's a relationship, a partnership, a collaboration, but you're right. That's the same with our learners as much as uh, I, I'm not, this has never been the sage on the stage, faculty member, professor, but I would say, I think it is a shared relationship, especially in uh, an online environment when you maybe don't know everyone and see everyone, or you may not have visual cues. Some people do in their courses, but others don't. So um, I think it's, it's nice that you get to talk with the instructors to say, well, how do you want to show up as well? What does your presence look like online? And they're like, well, they don't want to know about me. I was like, you'd be surprised how much students do want to know some random facts about you. Like whether it's you run marathons to you have a silly dog or something. Like, I don't know. They, they like those little things, at least having some parts of you show up in the courses. Right. Yeah. Instructor presence in online courses is really important because otherwise, you know, it's very isolating. So there's a lot of research on that, on how, the online experience can be very isolating. Um, and what I, what I have read as well is that when you increase the use of technology, um, if you want it to be a satisfying experience for humans, you need to increase the human interaction. And so when you're online, you are, um, you are losing a lot of nonverbal communication and you 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 have to compensate for that by increasing your human interaction, your human presence. So if you can increase the use of visuals or video or audio, um, then you you have a better chance. Um, and yeah, putting yourself out there, um, you know, as as much as you feel comfortable and is appropriate right. um, to let students know that. You, there's a human on the other other end on the other side of the computer screen. There's an actual human being um, that cares about you know your success. Um, and I even encourage faculty if they're teaching online, you know, and student a student is not getting something, you know, talk on the phone. Mm-hmm. Um, so anything you can do to to interact with students is. It's only going to serve your course. 
Absolutely. And I, I think the robots aren't coming for these jobs as much as people say. Like, otherwise, you have like automatic grading, some larger courses or peer evaluation and peer review and some courses. But really, they want to hear from you. Like they want to see and hear and know. Um, so little small things, like you said, having a phone call. I mean, office hours that are varied, both um, online, like I like I meet with them on Zoom and they can call in by phone or they can use their app or they can do a desktop. Like they just want to know you're accessible in some way. And then, yeah, you want to have that humane experience and interact with someone. And you'd be surprised how much more motivated um, and engaged students really are after they get that type of interaction with recognizing, oh, there is someone who cares about me on that other side of that screen. And I like that. This is a podcast about uh, wine and stories and storytelling. You've shared so much now. I don't know if there is anything um, that you have a go-to beverage, whether it's wine or something else that you gather with friends, family, colleagues um, that you care to share with your listeners. Um, So right now I'm drinking coffee and we have a faculty commons area that has um, a coffee machine. And we encourage faculty to pop in and TAs as well to pop in and have some coffee and, you know, talk to us. Um, I think that's a great idea. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't know how many campuses out there have a place like this, but um, if you, if you can have a place like this, it's, it's great. Um, So a couple of couches or, a little setup where they can sit and chat? Um, yeah, actually, we have pictures of it, too, on our website. Um, it's a new space. I think it's, like, a year old. And we have, yeah, movable furniture, uh, computers, um, couches. We have a light board. We have um, a video conferencing station. We have, uh, like, a mini library. Um And yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a nice space. And right now we staff it. Um, People from our department are there. And so I was just there right before I came here and a faculty member needed help with her course. And so I was able to just jump in and help her because I just happened to be there at that time. That's great. So they can pop in, get a coffee, get caffeinated and have a bit of a chat. So what a great common space to have. So we'll share a link to that because maybe some other uh, organizations or units might like to do the same thing. That's great. Yeah. You shared a couple of books already. Um, since you are an avid reader, is there anything else, uh, another story or something that's been resonating with you lately? So it could be a podcast, book, article, movie, TV. We'll welcome any other thing that you recommend to our listeners. Um, yes. So I saw a movie recently. It was a documentary called, um, how mom decolonized the screen. It's, uh, mm. it's from New Zealand and the director is the son of a, a late famous director, um, Marata Mitta, mm-hmm. M-I-T-A. And, um, she is a indigenous, uh, person from New Zealand. And yeah, it was wonderful. So I recommend that. Um, Great. And in my research, as I look at Latinx women, Hispanic women, Latinas, um, that issue comes up 
again, because we are, um, a lot of times it's the Hispanic world has a, a mixture of indigenous people, um, African people, uh, European people. Um, there's a lot of variety and um, that, that comes up a lot. Um, indigenous uh, people within Latin cultures. Interesting. I love a good documentary, so I'm going to definitely check that out. So thank you for sharing that. And then before we wrap up, is there anything that you'd like to share or share something that's bringing you joy these days that kind of is making you smile that you're like, oh yeah, this is great. So, okay. So I signed up for, I signed up for a 10 K that happens in my town every year. And um, that was exciting. It was exciting to, to sign up and have a goal. And so a friend and I are um, training for it. And I don't know, that's bringing me joy. It's like, oh, I signed up and I'm going to do it and I'm going to get the t-shirt. <laughs> no, it's great. It's a good commitment. When's your, when's your 10K? It's September 21st. Okay, so it's coming up. And is it a fun race or a themed race or anything? Um, it's not a themed race, but it's, it's pretty well known in this area and the whole town comes out for it and people literally like stand outside their houses and ring (laughs) ring bells and, you know, offer you drinks. And it just seems like the whole town comes out for it. And afterward there's, um, there's like a big celebration and lots of freebies and raffles and um yeah it's like a whole big to do so cool what's what's the name of the race it's called the great cow harbor 10k fun well i think that's a good thing to bring you joy is spending some time with your friend training and getting a goal accomplished i think that's great Yeah, yeah i like it well Carol, thank you so much for taking the time out of your schedule to chat with us for the InVino Fab Pod. Uh, we appreciate all that you've shared, and I'm going to try to remember all the links and write down show notes as I do some editing of this. And if there's anything else you'd like to share, resources, reads, or things you want to share with our listeners, we'd be happy to include them in the show notes. And we'll share your contact information. So some of our listeners may want to get in touch with you to learn more about your research, practice, um, and the things that you're working on. So please feel free to come back if you've got some more to share or you want some advice from our listeners and you're requesting some, maybe some interviewees, some people to sample for your population, um, for your studies, we'd be happy to help. Okay, great. Thank you so much. To catch the next episode, be sure to subscribe to hashtag InVinoFab wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at InVinoFab and we'll always welcome comments and messages sent by tweet, private message, or email at InVinoFabulum at gmail.com. Cheers!